Welcome to Bot Hostage Diplomacy. We work to free hostages and the unjustly detained around the world. Together with their families, we share their stories and let you know how you can help bring them home. Now, when it comes to using the family to get for Russia to get what they want, if that's the case, they've picked the wrong family because I'm not going to carry water for the Russian authorities. These are some of the most courageous and resilient people among us. I never thought that my mother, Nahi Tagavi, will ever have a link to negotiations in Vienna about the JCPOA. That's so crazy. People who have never given up hope. Trevor told his girlfriend to tell me to, to be strong. So I'm trying to be strong for Trevor. You know, if, if Trevor can cope with what he's dealing with, exactly. we, we can sure cope with the stress. People who will never stop working to reunite their families. We'd like to meet with the president. Uh, we believe that, you know, he has, uh, he's surrounded by lots of uh, experienced and educated advisors. But I don't believe that any of them have ever had a, a child taken hostage by a foreign country, especially not a superpower like Russia. And we'll be right there by their side until their loved one comes back home. Because um, if enough people care, then the right people will care enough. I'm Darren Nair, and I've been campaigning with many of these families for years. When I first started campaigning with these families, I noticed they struggled to get the media attention they needed. So I decided to create this podcast, which is a safe space for the families to speak as long as they need to about their loved ones and what needs to be done to bring them home. Nobody can prepare you for what our family is going through. Even if someone had told me one year before, in one year, this is going to happen, prepare yourself. It's impossible. Thank you for listening and welcome to Port Hostage Diplomacy. Welcome to Port Hostage Diplomacy. American citizen Gerald Kenamore from Dallas, Texas, has been wrongfully imprisoned in Venezuela since March this year. The US government classified Gerald as being wrongfully detained, meaning his case will now be handled by the US Special Presidential Envoy for Hostage Affairs and his team. Venezuela is notorious for taking innocent Americans captive on false charges and using them as leverage to extract concessions from the United States. This is state-sponsored hostage-taking also known as hostage diplomacy. The U.S. State Department's travel advisory for Venezuela currently has a level 4 do not travel rating. The following is the first paragraph from that travel advisory. Do not travel to Venezuela due to crime, civil unrest, poor health infrastructure, kidnapping, and the arrest and detention of U.S. citizens without due process or fair trial guarantees. Exercise increased caution in Venezuela due to terrorism and wrongful detentions. Today, we have the honor of speaking to Gerald's sister, Gina Kinnamore-Tillery, who is joining us from Texas. Gina, we're so sorry for what you, Gerald, and your family are going through. Thank you for taking the time to speak to us today. Thank you for having us. I'm representing the family, so thank you for having me and letting you, us tell his story. You're very welcome. Can you please walk us through what happened to your brother, Gerald? Well, um, he has been, he had been living in Colombia since 2019 and, um, he had met a woman there, uh, that he had fallen in love with and their relationship 
progressed over the last couple years. And she had a marriage that she is trying to um, settle her affairs with a previous marriage and custody dispute. And um, she, although they lived in Colombia, actually was from Venezuela. So um, Gerald was trying to help her settle her affairs and settle a custody dispute by meeting uh, with her ex-husband in Venezuela and settling the debt on the house that his fiance and her ex-husband had owned together and settling their affairs with their custody dispute. And so he and Yasmina had traveled to Venezuela and they were able to travel because they had all their papers. Uh, he had his uh, up-to-date travel papers, his passport, everything was in order. And so he was allowed to travel into the country. And uh, this was two weeks prior to his actual arrest. Um, and then they had crossed back over after purchasing the house and making an agreement with her ex-husband. And they were at a a grocery store in um, in and around the Colombian Venezuela border, um, and as as I understand it, they were most of the family was inside the store, but Gerald and a couple of the people, um, I think he was with three different people that actually got arrested with him. Um, uh, there was a naval captain. Um, I'm sorry, so many de details, but anyway, there were some people that were actually with him at, while his family was inside the store, and um, at that time, he was abducted by a masked gang with guns, and he was held for three days before he was turned over to the port, uh, immigration port there in Venezuela. And at that time, he was detained and arrested on um, counterintelligence charges, as well as you know, being an American spy working against the Maduro regime. Um, and so I was told first that he had been abducted because we did not know his location or that he had wound up in the DG or Dihasim, as it's called. Um, and uh, his fiance at the time, uh, she's still his fiance, sorry. Um, she had geolocated him and found out that he was in the Dihasim. And um, so at that time, she notified us of what had happened. And uh, it was mainly she had been able to reach out to uh, my brother's sons here in America, and they had contacted me. And for the first month, I really wasn't involved other than to just be supportive. His sons were the ones that were trying to contact the, you know, uh, the State Department and the Colombian Embassy. And so they didn't get very far, and they were getting a lot of phone tag and, uh, you know, just genuinely not getting much, uh, much progress, getting his case at least, you know, started with the United States. And so I decided at that time um, that I would step up for the family. And so for 
the last eight months that he's been in the Dihasim, I've been the representative for the family and I've worked with the State Department and uh, I also have spoken with the UN and um, I've started a case with them for the humane or human rights violations and there's some torture that uh, I had to report to them um, and just... I've spent most of the last eight months kind of not knowing what would happen for my brother, not knowing if he would even be declared by the United States Department. Um, but finally, over the last month, we were able to, uh, because he was in a hunger strike, the original hunger strike that he started in October, um, he had made it to about 22 days. And finally, he was... Uh, declared by the United States Department or U U.S. State Department. And um, so I was able to get him to stop the first hunger strike. So at that time, he had done a total of 27 days out of October that he had not eaten. And um, I was thinking things were going to calm down a little bit and that we could just be patient for the U.S. State Department to do what they needed to do. And um, obviously, I was working with the UN, but I thought that it would be my my time to just sit back and let them do what they need to do and just keep, you know, taking care of Gerald as much as I can, you know, by sending medications and food and supplies to him, as well as just providing any updates on his condition, anything I could do to help, you know, my government. And, um, and over the last week, you know, I had noticed, I don't get a lot of phone calls from Gerald now, um, prior to his being declared by the state department, we had been getting phone calls every day up until, you know, with the exception of Saturday. And, um, so I was talking to him 15 minutes a day for months and, you know, it wasn't a great situation, obviously, but I was able to keep him calm and I was able to keep him positive. And, and then, um, over the last week, there was a, a prisoner that he had not known about before, uh, a man named Ing Ingebert Chaparro. He's also in the, uh, Dihasim, another prisoner there. Um, he's been there almost five years. <laughs> And he's uh, been, we assume at this point, because we'd never seen him before, um, that he was in isolation. And that's what I understand at this time. Um, he was detained simply because he was the contact in someone else's phone. And so I don't know more than that, but I do know that he's put out a public letter and he's been on a hunger strike himself and that given that the treatment from um, the Dihasim has actually become worse, it seems. Uh, I should say that, that my brother is a very, he's a good man. He really is a good man, but he, he has some depression and he has some anger issues and he has uh, an issue mainly to feel, uh, dealing with uh, 
opposition. So with he and this subdirector of the DOC, it's become a back and forth rivalry. And I think Gerald just couldn't resist the challenge. And I feel like sometimes he's been um, not necessarily compliant. Uh, he's certainly not been always agreeable, but he's not done anything to try and um you know, receive the, the treatment that he's received now. He can only call us uh, twice a week for five minutes. Um, and those calls have lately, they've been very um, concerning. I'm hearing some things in my brother's voice as someone who's, who knows his mental health history. Um, I've, I knew that he, I felt like he was doing better because of the declaration, but I've started to understand from him that his treatment has gotten worse. He seems, uh, the, he seems to believe that the subdirector has a personal vendetta against him. And so at this time, he had rejoined his hunger strike again with this Ingbert, um, Chaparro. And so they're both doing it now. But um, on Sunday, that was the last day that I had spoken to Gerald and he was very, very agitated. And he spent um, a lot of the time just ranting to me about what had been happening to him there. And I was working, you know, as I had spoken to the State Department the night before and they had asked me to do what I could to try and get him to start eating again and to not, um, in the beginning, he was saying that his protest was just as much about what had been happening to the Venezuelan prisoners as what's happening to the American prisoners. And um, I believe that the State Department was encouraging us to focus on his release and at this time. And so I was hoping during this call, it turned out to be 18 minutes, which was more than I was allowed, you know, at the beginning, they had told, they had said very strictly five minute calls. And so I do believe that they felt like I was trying to be helpful. And so they allowed us to talk longer. And I thought I was going to have him, uh, convinced to stop this hunger strike and he just became irate on the phone and I knew that he was struggling mentally already so I had obviously was very concerned and I was trying to talk to him and that is when he told me that he won't eat until his fiance who was arrested for taking a medicine about three days after he was there um he won't stop his hunger strike until she's released. So that is where we are at this time. I've not been able to speak to him since Sunday. I have begged the, the Dihasim to let me talk to him. I've tried to explain to them. I know I'm not supposed to do that. And um, I, I don't usually do that. But in the situation with him right now, I'm very concerned about his sui suicidal e ideation. 
and because of his history and because of the fact that he has already attempted suicide twice while he's been in the the um in the situation and um he both times has tried to hang himself in a cell with a sheet and I feel like they know that he is suicidal and that they know that this is a risk and I feel like I'm probably the only one that could really help him, but they won't let me talk to him. So at this point, I don't have more information about what's happening with him than that. Gina, I'm so sorry for that. Um, I know, uh, I know it can be very tough. Um, sometimes it's tougher being the person watching uh, a loved one go through this than going through it yourself because yeah. you feel helpless and you don't have as much control of the situation. Mm -hmm. um, Feels like I'm in the cage with him. It really does. We, we were very close as kids and we always stuck by each other and through all kinds of things that we've been through in our lives. So, I mean, for us, this is, it, it almost feels like it's us against the world. <laughs> and until the State Department had declared him, you know, I just didn't have a lot of evidence that it wasn't just us. But, you know, I do feel better since he's been declared and he's in Speha now. I do feel like they're doing a good job and taking, you know, taking him, you know, his case seriously and doing what they can. So I'm not hopeless, but yeah, you're right. It's very, very hard. It's extremely traumatic. And it does feel like I'm in the cage with him most of the time when he's not doing his hunger strikes or when he is doing his hunger strikes. I'm a lot of times I can't eat and I struggle with nightmares, feeling like I'm you know, it's his life in my hands. And now it feels like it's his family's lives in my hands, too. Um, I've become very attached to them through text and communication that way. I can actually talk to his fiance. She's um, able to have a phone, so I'm able to talk to her. And, um, you know, there it's just a lot of pressure. So, you know, that's... Nothing you can prepare yourself for. Nothing you can ever imagine that will happen to you until it does. Again, I'm so sorry. And uh, you're not alone. There are many families going through this as well. There are many NGOs and campaigners helping out as well where they can yes. and however they can. I, I guess I wouldn't say it's a positive. It's more like a silver lining. Mm. It's my understanding that he is being held with other prisoners and uh, he's not your brother is not in isolation. Is that true? No, no, he's not in isolation. They don't get to be together a lot. And as I understand it, during this phase of, you know, him being um, kind of a target for the subdirector, he's being isolated, but not kept in isolation. It's just they won't allow his cell door to be open most of the time. And so uh, he's also not allowed to um, interact with the other prisoners and not allowed to share supplies or any of the other things that, you know, would be beneficial to having cellmates. Um, so it 
he's his biggest thing is he's relied on his faith a lot during this and um pretty much the only joy he was able to have is he had begun uh leading bible studies and worship services for the other uh with the other cell uh mates and they've taken that away from him as a punishment because they know that it means so much to him so um he's spending a lot of his time that he would be able to worship with the other cellmates he's having to do it alone in his cell and i just keep encouraging him to just keep reading the passages you know that that means so much to him and you know that that's been the hardest violation of all for him i think he's you know you could take his water away they did take his water away for three days um they once i had sent him a tea kettle and some teas and they gave him his teas but they would not let him have any water for three days and that was just devastating and that was during his first hunger strike in october that was punishment for his hunger strike so we have learned the hard way <laughs> that there's just not a lot of comfort that i can give to him and even the stuff that i'm sending to him is um often being withheld from him so it's it's very hard um and the other thing i wanted to say was that i feel like at this point the most important thing for me to say is that I can't get supplies to him at this time because of the rivalry and the problems that he's having with the subdirector. And so I don't know if he's going to have medicine, his antidepressants or his heart medication much longer. And his family has been harassed and very badly treated the last time they did take him supplies and they were told never to go back there and threatened with incarceration themselves. And one of my family members, um, my niece, she was actually, in my mind, sexually assaulted. But uh, I guess it's a search. So uh, sexual harassment and the search. And so now I have no way to get him medication or teas or anything um the food that they give them is very minimal he describes it as very bland rice and uh so there's not much to eat even when he is eating at this point uh the visits that he was getting was basically the best uh the best food he was going to get um and he's not receiving video uh visits anymore so Anyway, that's, that's something I felt like was important to tell you. Absolutely. That's uh, useful information for our listeners. Um, you also brought up heart medication. So yes. I take it he has some serious uh, yeah. pre-existing heart conditions. Can you just yes. elaborate further? Uh, yes, he has a heart condition. He has to take medication for that. And um, I don't, I wouldn't say that, that he gets true medical care Um think it's mainly there for absolute emergencies and even then it's basic basic medical care so if there was an issue with his heart or if he needed to have 
true cardiac treatment of any kind, he wouldn't be able to get it now because of the situation. And he's also, as I mentioned before, had a long history with um, his depression and mental health illness. Um, he, he struggles with that and he's had suicide attempts inside. He had never been suicidal before he was incarcerated. I mean, he had been in suicidal, but he'd never acted on it. Um, in his life previous to this. And I feel like a lot of that is because he's not getting the proper medications that he was able to get before he was incarcerated. So Gina, um, just to take a step back for the benefit of our listeners, can you talk a bit about your brother's background? So I understand he is a computer programmer. Can you tell us a bit more about him? Yeah, he's a software engineer and a uh, programmer. He's uh, written software for American companies uh, for their inner office uh, communications with each other. He's also uh, maintained platforms for their clients as far as uh, he's worked in the medical industry and also the tax industry, um, just providing software that's um, tailored to those uh, specific businesses. Um, Prior to that, he was an engineer. He's kind of a jack of all trade with his hands. He can fix anything. He can do just about anything with um, a computer. He's, I mean, I wouldn't say that he's anything more than a coder, but, you know, he's, he's pretty advanced. Uh, he, for someone who it's, uh, he's learned it all from books and he's taught himself and taken certification tests, you know, to, to get where he, he was and he was able to do pretty well for himself. Um, he's a good Christian man. He's, uh, spent most of his life, you know, as a married man, he raised a family with, uh, the mother of his children for 23 years and they got divorced in 2018. And that led to him having sort of a midlife crisis, I would say, a very painful divorce. And that's kind of what led him to seek a relationship uh, different. He didn't want to go out to the bars. He didn't want to, you know, meet a perspective girlfriends that way and he discovered the um online match uh i don't think it was match.com or anything like that but he actually seemed to you know because of that divorce he was looking to not marry or date american women because he had had two prior, uh, previous marriages that had been extremely traumatizing for him. So that is what led him to seek out, um, you know, romantic relationship with, with someone online. And that is when he met um, not the woman that he is with and will marry, but he had also, prior to that, um, when he first moved to Colombia, he had married an, a Colombian woman there, and um, 
that turned out to be a scam situation. So this woman that he's now with, the, she's a very good person and she's a wonderful human being. Honestly, I'm very impressed with her. Having met her, you know, somewhere here in America, I think they'd be having a wonderful time with each other. They're very well suited. But, um, you know, because he was already in Colombia for this other, you know, to he had actually married this first Colombian woman that he had met. And um, he was there to try and settle that divorce with her. And I think he was planning to come back to the States. But um his fiance now actually was his friend at the time. And through that process, she was helping him uh, meet the requirements in Colombia for a divorce. And so she was helping him through that process and they fell in love with each other. And here we are uh, four years later and they're both in prison and it's just a sad, sad situation. But, um, one of the things that I do want to do is make sure that, you know, awareness happens for people in America to realize just how easily you can get drawn into a dangerous situation where this can happen. Um, a lot of the people that go on these websites, they're just completely unsuspecting. They don't, they understand, they've heard the, the, terror stories and the dangerous stories about people, but they never think it's going to happen to them. They just never, never imagine that it's going to happen to them. But apparently it's happening to lots of people, lots of Americans. From what I've uh, had to research and learn on my own, this has been a problem for as long as there's been sanctions and from the United States. And I've read in the trial papers for my brother, it actually does say in there that he was detained mainly because he was an American and they were upset about the sanctions. There was really no evidence at the time to prove that he had done anything criminal. And there is no mention of the fact that that he was abducted, but he was abducted and he was held for three days. And the family there was, well, attempts to make, you know, to extort, extort them were made. And we just didn't have sufficient funds to do anything to get him out of the situation. So he was turned over to the Venezuelan Immigration Authority at gunpoint. He was literally being forced when these men were following him and they told him to cross that port. So he was delivered to Venezuela by a gang in Colombia. And I just don't think people understand just how easy this can happen, even in other countries that we don't hear are unsafe to be in, you know, that we aren't told to stay away from. So I think it's important to make sure that people understand that risk for themselves. Absolutely. Um, you mentioned Gerald's trial. Mm -hmm. So the court process, the trials in Venezuela are, well, to be frank. A sham. No notoriously unfair. A sham <laughs> yeah. trial, basically. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So has Gerald had access to a lawyer? 
Has he uh, has he been able to mount an, uh, he has a, a good defense? Um, we have attempted with we did hire a lawyer at the beginning of this, and uh, we worked with this lawyer for a few months. But by June, we weren't getting anywhere with this case, and um, he told us. At the last, he said that he could solve our problem for us, but he would need $20,000. And obviously, I don't have that kind of money. And I said no. So we ended our uh, relationship with him. And um, thus far, Gerald has been to court a few times. The first time he was at court, they, um, they did not provide him an interpreter, so we really don't know what happened during that first um, appearance. But the second appearance, they finally are now allowing his fiance to actually uh, stand with him in court. And uh, I don't think that they're necessarily being tried together in that way, but they are allowing her to be an interpreter and speak on his behalf. And that's made a big difference for him because he's now been able to explain his case better to the magistrate there. And um, he's seen two judges and we kind of think that they're playing good cop and bad cop, if that makes sense. Um, one has actually said to him that he understood that his case was entirely political and that there was not a criminal element. But the other um essentially tried to get him to um plead for uh entering Venezuela illegally and they said that if he would plead they would drop the counterintelligence charges if he would plead that he had entered Venezuela illegally and he would not do that um because he had all his paperwork and he could prove that so he refused to do that so Thus far, they've kept his uh, counterterrorism charges and U.S. spy charges, and he's not affiliated with the government in any way, nor has he ever been. Um, we just can't prove that to them. He's not able to prove that to them in the case so far. Um I will say with uh, speaking of a lawyer, he does have a lawyer that he is able to speak to. I think it's actually someone that's helping him. Uh, one of the other Americans uh, that's in there with him is a lawyer himself. And so the lawyer that's been helping him, I believe, is uh, advising Gerald. Ivan Hernandez was a pro public defender himself so i think i don't think we'll have to convince him that we needed help you know and he's got the entire los angeles public defenders association 33,000 strong so i mean we are getting legal advice but he's not uh on retainer uh with anyone no one is no one has been designated as far as his trial goes uh, as being his representation so yes, you mentioned Avin Hernandez. Mm -hmm. So he's the American citizen from Los Angeles. Uh, yeah. He works in the LA County Public Defender's Office. So 
A couple episodes ago, I interviewed Avin's uh, brother, Henry Martinez. Yes. And you can Henry. listen to the episode on pothostagediplomacy.com or wherever you get your podcast. So yes, he has also been designated as wrongfully detained by the US State Department. Yeah. Um, and at least it's good to know that, I mean, it's bad that they're both there, but at mm-hmm. least they uh, have each other. Gina, what should the Venezuelan government do? I want them to work harder to try to, you know, to settle their disputes with us, uh, with the sanctions. I want them to work that out with our government in a way that, you know, that ends hostage diplomacy. I mean, they're taking people that have absolutely nothing to do with with their disputes. And, you know, these people are being lured there. It's... It's terrifying that, that, you know, good natured people are going there and they have no idea what they're being pulled into. And then when they get there, they're not being treated well. I mean, they're, they're being treated as if they were guilty. And I, I feel like they, they know in advance that these people aren't guilty or they wouldn't have to write things like, well, we also are upset about the sanctions in his trial papers if that wasn't what it was mostly about. And I mean, there's certainly no evidence in, in his arrest papers or the the trial. It's just I just want them to understand that this isn't the way to do it. And obviously, obviously, I want them to let them out to release them. Um, I see that we're we're starting some. Um, not necessarily sanctions relief, but I know that Chevron has been able to start drilling there, and I know that that's beneficial. So I'd like to see some some acts from Venezuela, uh, you know, to show their goodwill, their good faith, you know, in this process. Um, I feel at the very least uh, they could stop the subdirector from what he's been overseeing and ordering there. Uh, I'm probably one of the only people that's vocal about that particular subdirector, but he has a long history and he's hurt several of the Americans. Some of them have now been released and they're here and can provide that testimony to the important people they need to. But I feel like Maduro should make an effort. I mean, these, these Americans, the, it seems to me the greatest power that Venezuela has at this point, or the regime has at this point is how bad they can treat our Americans. And when they want to do these negotiations, I feel like they have to make extra effort to treat these people, at least humanely at the very, very minimum, meets the international criminal standards for prisoners at the very minimum. So you mentioned the subdirector of the mm-hmm. DRCM. So that's the DGCIM. It's mm-hmm. basically, it stands for the Directorate General of Military Counterintelligence. Yes. Um, it's a military prison. It's basically a basement. Yes. There's, not, there's no... They call it the house I mean, uh, of dreams. <laughs> yeah. So um, 
basically you're asking the Venezuelan government to stop the subdirector of the Dihasim from abusing Gerald. And torturing and hurting the other Americans as well. I feel like all of them should be protected from this. I mean, these del- these these negotiations are so delicate. I don't understand that why we wouldn't he wouldn't make an effort to protect them through this process, so that it's not made any more difficult than it already is. Exactly. So, um, if in hostage diplomacy cases, if something ha- very bad happens to the hostage, then. Venezuela is not going to be able to get what they want from the U.S. government. It's only going to make things worse. Exactly. So, so it's India' benefit to keep the American prisoners, or in this case, in this case, hostages, mm-hmm. as healthy as possible. Exactly. Um, so, what should the U.S. government do, Gina, to help bring your brother home? I feel like they're doing so much already, and I am so happy with them. I, I, I want them just to keep up the good work and keep doing what they're doing. I, I can feel the progress. I, I, it, it's been very, very helpful to me for the State Department, uh, the SPEHA, to contact me, and they were, they made me feel like we have a chance to get him out and I just want them to keep doing what they're doing. They're, they're great at what they do. Uh, far be it from me to tell them what to do. They're wonderful at what they do. And I, Roger Karstens and all the people there have been amazing. So I have no complaints. I just want, um, I want president, Biden to keep it, keep all this in mind of what's been happening to my brother and the other prisoners there and how they've been treated. I think that that's important to consider or in any negotiations that he might be having with that government. I want them to understand that they're innocent lives that you know, at least these American prisoners, it's my sense that they just don't have much longer. They don't have, you know, they don't have the hope left. And it's very hard to convince them in the Dehasim with the circumstances. It's just very hard to convince them that it's worth waiting and to, you know, keep taking care of themselves and to eat. They need to see more, you know, President Biden could make a world of difference for the American hostages that are in there right now if he would just say their names and let them know that he knows them, or at least he knows about them. You know, when he won't say their names and when he won't mention them, but we're talking about the positive negotiations that have, you know, brought up you know, brought about Chevron drilling again. I mean, that's wonderful. I'm so happy for that. That's progress. But it just seems like the American hostages are getting lost in that coverage. So that's why I'm here to talk to you today. And, you know, and I plan on talking to plenty of other um, people to try and get my brother's story out and to create more awareness. When I say that I was alone for the last eight months, I have to say that um, the families, at least most of the families have all reached out to me and they've all been there to kind of support me through it. And I just, 
I want our government to understand that, you know, we've been holding on and hanging on for a long time now, but it's time to, it's time to resolve this because uh, our people just can't wait any longer. And the treatment that they're getting and the human rights violations that they're suffering are just it's just made it impossible to just keep convincing them to just keep going. So they're running out of time. And for some of them, they're running out of medication that I can't refill. So I know that we're going to have some issues coming up with my brother as he runs out of his medication that I don't know what we'll do about it. I certainly, as just a private citizen, can't do more than what I have. And I need I need their help. At this point, it's time to help. I can't do it alone anymore. So I've interviewed the families of five members of the Sitco Six. These were the six American oil executives mm-hmm. uh, who worked for Sitco Petroleum, who were wrongfully imprisoned in Venezuela in November 2017. One of them was released earlier this year. The remaining five were were released in a prisoner swap on 1st of October that freed seven Americans. I believe it was Carlos Añez, uh, the stepson of Jorge Toledo. When I interviewed him, uh, we discussed the reasons why the president of the United States doesn't say the name of the, uh, doesn't publicly state the names of these members of the Sitco Six. It's because if the president does that he's elevating them and raising the price of the hostage and that oh. means venezuela will then ask for more concessions oh, but obviously there's the uh, as what you just said is it means a lot to them to the hostages themselves uh yeah. the wrongful detainees themselves to know that the president is aware of their case and is, and is actively working to bring them home so i think there's a positive and a negative of the president of the United States publicly saying your name. And I think they're just weighing the pros and cons. Um, as I said, on the 1st of October, seven Americans who were classified as wrongfully detained were freed in a prisoner swap. Your brother, Gerald Kenamore, was not among the seven Americans released. Avin Hernandez was not released. Um, at that time, neither of them were classified as wrongfully detained. So both your brother and Avin were detained in March this year. I believe Avin Hernandez was classified as wrongfully detained in October. Your brother was classified as wrongfully detained earlier this month, right. which is about seven to eight months after they were taken. Do you think if that classification happened a lot faster, your brother would have come home in that prisoner swap? Yes, I know that he would have. Because they took the people that were classified wrongly detained at that time. I do believe that. I believe that he would be home now if we had been able to get him designated faster. And I also believe that he would have been treated better in the long run. I don't know that um, the rivalry that's built up between him and the subdirector, I don't know that it would be this bad had he been declared earlier, because that has been one of the things that the subdirector has used is to tell him that he didn't matter to the United States. They left you behind. 
they left you. They don't care about you. That's what he heard for almost a month. And after, especially after I, Avon was declared, he was still hearing that. See, they don't care about you. They care about Avon, but they don't care about you. And that was the hardest thing is to convince him that they did, you know. He, he honestly, at, at some of those calls, I don't know that he believed me that I was actually even talking to the State Department. He thought I was giving him lip service. And that's why I say I understand about not elevating the price of a hostage. But, I mean, when the people inside the DGCIM can tell those hostages, you don't matter. Because if you did matter, they would have designated you. And then you don't matter because if you did matter, they would have taken you home October 1st. I mean, you can't imagine how hard it's been to convince him to keep going. And I'm not doing the greatest job because he's he's on another hunger strike. And I, mean, I truly don't know that he won't make another suicide attempt before we can get him out. Well, hopefully Ambassador Roger Carstens, who is the U.S. Special Presidential Envoy for Hostage Affairs, yeah. uh, the acronym is SPIHA, yeah. uh, hopefully him and his team will be able to, I mean, obviously with the uh, with sign-off from President Biden uh, yeah. and Secretary Anthony Blinken will be able to bring your brother and the other wrongfully detained Americans in Venezuela mm-hmm. back mm-hmm. home as soon as possible. Now, the news outlets play a huge role in keeping, in raising awareness of uh, wrongfully detained Americans in Venezuela and Americans held hostage in countries around the world. What can journalists and news outlets do to help? Reach out to me. Find me on Twitter. Um, I Twitter seems to be the place that I have the largest uh, following. So it seems to be the place that I do the most uh my my most regular daily updates to it and so if they could follow me follow us families out there and get in touch with us and you know give us an opportunity to at least give them the details we have at the time um you know i feel like that that would be helpful and if they decide at that time that we're not ready for a national story that's fine but you know don't let us go because our people didn't get out. <laughs> Just keep keep contacting us and, you know, give us a chance to get our, our loved ones' stories out there. We need as much help with awareness as possible because in Venezuela, at least, I mean, I can't tell you what it's like to have a prisoner in Iran or China or Russia or any of these other places, but I do know a lot about what it's like to have a loved one in Venezuela's prison, and the press matters to them. It matters to them. They are terrified of two things. They're terrified of exposure, and they're terrified of uh consequences and mainly through the ICC which I would be too <laughs> I mean I don't like the I don't like what's coming but you know that's what it has to be uh, in America you do the crime you do the time so I mean 
for me, I feel like it's actually better to, to speak to the press. Um, I was told not to, that it was better to keep our story, you know, under wraps for until we could get him out. And I feel like that that's actually slowed him down getting out. I feel like it's definitely affected how he was treated inside because there's only been one article about my brother before now. And I had followed in my, my estimation, I was trying to do what I was told to be the most helpful to getting him released. So I wish I had actually spoken to the press much earlier and I'm going to be doing that now with you today. And thank you again for that, but also with several, uh, several different reporters in the next week and a half, two weeks. So we will all be hearing about Gerald. If I can help it, I'm going to try my best now. Gina, what can the American public do to help for your brother? Care, care, because it could be you. It could be your loved one. I've had a very hard time getting any. Um, there have been people, certainly, that that have come to me and, and been supportive. But as far as being able to get this as a story that people are talking about, they're just not. And I know with everything going on in the world, you can't blame them. You know, there's just a lot of stories to worry about right now. But, you know, political prisoners matter. And they shouldn't have to be famous basketball stars, you know, to to get the kind of exposure that they need. I mean, they all need it. They all need a, the awareness among the American public. And they all need that support. It's, it's the, it's the one thing that I think they need the most is to feel like Americans care. I absolutely agree with you. Um, we're almost at the end of our interview. Is there anything else you'd like to mention? Um, you know, I feel like I've covered it all. I, I I'm, Again, I am so grateful to you. You are the first person that I'm talking to. And Baron, you have been amazing. You have been so kind to me. And again, I, I just can't thank you enough for having me today. You're very welcome, Gina. It's an honor to help. Um, we're so sorry for what you and your family are going through. And we will be campaigning right by your side until your brother Gerald comes home. I know. I feel you. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> You're very welcome. Thank you for taking the time to speak to us today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Pod Hostage Diplomacy. Thank you for giving your time and for showing these families that they're not alone, that there are good caring people out there willing to stand by their side and help in any way possible. Because um, if enough people care, then the right people will care enough. Um, this is sort of a basic um, rule of thumb that is true for all campaigning. If you haven't already, please subscribe to our fortnightly newsletter called The Hostage Briefing. It's the best way to keep up to date with the cases we're working on, as well as new episodes. You can subscribe to this newsletter using the link in the description of this podcast episode that you're currently listening to. Thanks again, and take care.